Okay, I'm glad you're here. <clears throat> I'm glad you're here. We're gonna we're gonna jump in and uh, talk about a number of things. There's there's uh, something beautiful um, uh, about Aaron Kohen, uh, Aaron the, the high priest, um, that I that I want to focus in on because I think that um, it, it it really touches on 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 the human condition and also deals with a, an issue that I, I think that every thinking person, especially a person who's um, contemplating uh, taking on sort of a more active role uh, in, their, in, their, in their spirituality and, and adding uh, more um, uh, observance of, 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 of mitzvahs uh, to their life, um, sort of struggles with. And... That question is just sort of like, um, if you want to phrase it this way, sort of like particularism, if that's if that's a word, uh, versus universality, and to to what extent uh, will walking a specific path, especially in terms of halakha, halakha is um, widely, I think, uh, uh, undeservedly uh, translated as. Uh, as Jewish law, it's not um, it's not an incorrect translation, but it is a um, it is it's one that uh, sort of like takes a, a very lofty idea and sort of shackles it um, in a really unkind way. Halacha holech uh, just to deal with the Hebrew right now. Holech means to walk, and so halacha means actually the way or the path, and it actually has more of a, a in, in sort of the, the sort of the, the, the modern mindset, much more of a, a Zen type um, uh, implication than a legalistic um, restrictive one. Halakha really means to flow, basically that this is the, the path of the universe, and that God articulated it, and that when we when we walk down these divine pathways, which are the the, the mitzvahs, when we when we walk down these divine pathways, that we put ourselves as Rabbi Aaron once put it, in harmony with ourself and with the universe. And that's, that is what a halakha is. And so, when one contemplates a more halakhic life, and they realize that that's a particular path, a lot of times um, one wonders if they are going to um, perhaps cut themselves off from a more universal reach. And so that then becomes very problematic, since one of the reasons that one is drawn to any path in spirituality is to embrace the oneness and totality of God. Well, isn't there a contradiction if I want to embrace the oneness and totality of God if I'm walking a particular path? So, you should know in Hebrew, one of the great gematrias um, uh, is that the word echad, uh, uh, which means one and really stands for the oneness of God, is uh, the number 13. And the, the word ava, which means love, is also 13. So in other words, on a deep sort of spiritual DNA level, um, oneness and love are, are the same concept. That, that if you love, then you're able to embrace the one. And so that's actually um, not a furthering of the question and the problem, like, how do I embrace the one if I want to love? But it's actually a solution to, to this conundrum. 
this problem, which is that, that the power of love is so strong that one is actually able to embrace the oneness of God and of existence, even if they're walking a particular path. And, 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 and the Torah path, we say Torah to met. Torah, Torah is, is, is the truth. So one embraces the truth of existence and is able to expand and reach out to, to its totality. Um, I want to show you this in what, something that occurred to me um, over Shabbos and just kind of got me excited. Um, in terms of a miracle, this miracle is not a, a widely known miracle. Doesn't get a lot of play, um, but it's a great miracle. Actually, it's a really cool miracle, and and I was wondering, like, why why this miracle is associated with Aaron? Okay, because Aaron, if you don't know, Aaron was the was you know the master of love. You know, I once said that to someone, and they thought that that really made him sound like a um, like a nineteen seventies funkadelic kind of like, you know, like soul kind of personality, you know. Um, the master of love. You can just hear uh, Barry White saying that, you know. But uh, anyway, he really was the master of love. And he brought everyone together. And it's, it's, it's widely remarked that it says in the, in the Torah that, that when Aaron died, all of Israel cried for 30 days. They couldn't stop crying. And, you know, you compare that with the reaction to, to Moses' death. And that was also like a reaction, but nothing compared to the, the, the emotional, visceral reaction to when Aaron died. Because Aaron was the glue that was really holding the Jewish people together. He was incredible. <coughs> he did so much. He was, he was really way out. You know, just to give you a few examples, he was known as making, he was known as an Ohev Shalom and a Rodev Shalom, which means he loved peace. And remember, peace, the word in peace in Hebrew is Shalom which is one of the names of God. And Shalom has the root Shalem, which means um, completeness. So, so, you know, one who's at peace is, is someone who is experiencing this, this notion of, of completeness, which means that they, they have this relationship on a very deep level with God um, and with each other, with all of humanity. So, so he loved peace and he ran after peace. In other words, that's, that's, that's incumbent upon us as well. Is that you can't just love peace, you have to run after peace. If you have a, a fight with someone, you have to remember this. You have to say, okay, well, we'll get it together, we'll make up eventually, or whatever it is. No, you have to run after peace. Now, there are ways to make peace, and you have to know that. In other words, I, I, oftentimes at the, site, at the height of someone's Anger is not the time to try to initiate peace. Sometimes you just have to let a person cool down a little bit. You know, otherwise it can be counterproductive. Um, and sometimes there's even a, um, an ego thing that one has to overcome in, 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 at that time. Because a person sometimes will be in a fight with someone and then the person is very angry. And you want to be the one who runs after peace. That's like already you hear the ego in it. I am going to make peace. <laughs> I don't care if you're incredibly mad and you don't want to hear right now. I, righteous one, will make peace right now. So you have to understand that you part of part of making peace oftentimes is to make your ego, you know, down, you know, and you have to allow the person to cool off a little bit. But then comes 
another aspect. You see, the Yetzirah, the, the evil inclination, is very tricky. Because then you go, well, I'll give him another week, I'll give him another week. But meanwhile, what are you doing? You're giving yourself another week, because now you don't want to, now you don't want to do it anymore. And everything becomes harder the longer you wait. You should just know that as a rule of the human condition. Everything becomes harder. And we trick ourselves. We say to ourselves, well, if I have a little more time, it will be even better. Right? This is where perfectionism kicks in and is like one of the great uh, uh, pitfalls. But the reality is, is that if you wait longer, it might be better. But you know what? At best, it's going to be a little bit better. At best, it's going to be a little bit better. And you also lose the advantage of responding quickly. Where, which is such an advantage that even if something is not that great because it's coming at the right time, it can compensate for the fact that it could be a little bit rougher. So all these things have to be balanced, obviously, you know, and, and everything like that. But I'm just trying to kind of give you a little sort of like a, a tour of, of, of some of, some of the, 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 the tricks life plays on us in terms of going too soon or waiting too long, basically. It reminds me, basically, or just of one of my favorite teachings. I'll just mention and then we'll go on back to Aaron. But um, the Yetzirah, one's, one's evil inclination, is, uh, is, is an angel, actually. And it's, uh, it works for God. And I just learned um, the other day from the Eish Kodesh, the uh, Pia Sesna Rebbe. He was the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto, and really one of the magnificent just holy figures of the last hundred years, awesome, awesome, awesome Rebbe. He, um, he said that, that the Yetzirah, this, this evil inclination, is not bad. But when one listens to it, the person then creates evil. It's a fascinating distinction. See, one thing that people don't understand, or not fully enough, is that, is that, in, 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 in Judaism, in Torah, there is only God. That's, that's it. There's no other power. And it's not that our God is stronger than your God. It's, there is no other power. That, that's, monotheism is actually a very radical path. We say there is no other power. There's only God. So, so God, you can't have good battling evil. In other words, there are other spiritual disciplines that say there's good and there's evil. And they're in this pitched battle against each other. Who's going to win? Good or evil? That's not our path. We say evil works for good. And how does that sort of trickle down in terms of our, our daily lives? When the Satan, when the, when the Yetzirah, when the evil inclination comes to a person, it wants you to say no to it. See, if it were working for itself, right? If it were self-employed, it would, you know, be like, hey, you know, the more business, the better. Give in to my sway. But that is not the approach of the Sahara because it works for God. It wants you to say no, and it says that, that the Sutton actually rips its clothes and cries if you give in to it. And if you say no to it, it jumps up and dances. And I'll give you a, another example of this, which is from... The Baal Shem Tov, uh, the, the, the father of the Hasidic movement, and, um, and, and he, said, he said like this, that, that uh, as, a, as a parable, as a mushal, 
that there was a king and his son. And you should know, whenever, whenever you hear uh, a king and his son, which is how most uh, Torah parables go, it's always talking about God and the Jewish people. So you have a king and his son. So the, the, the son lives in the king's castle, and the king has no way of really gauging what the true nature of the son is. Because, you know, in front of your father, you don't want to misbehave in the palace, right? By the way, my, my interpretation of just that part of the parable, we haven't gotten to the, the uh, evil part yet, is, or the explanation of evil, um, is that this is referring to a soul as it exists in heaven. In other words, we don't have free choice before we come down into a body. And so if God wants to sort of gauge the caliber of this, this soul, how can he do so while it's in the king's palace, while, while, it, while it's denied a free choice, basically? So, 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 continuing with the parable, that's just my interpretation, continuing with the, with the, with the mushroom, um, the king sends the son off to a faraway land. So that, again, I'll explain it in the following way, that that means he puts us into a body. Right? That's what it means to go to a faraway land. In this, in this world where God is hidden. Remember, one of the great pieces of Torah is that the word in Hebrew for world is olam. That's how you say world in Hebrew. And um, we know God, of course, created the world out of the Hebrew letters. So Hebrew has all sorts of keys to understanding the nature of things. And the root of the word olam, ayin lamid mem, means hidden. Because God is hidden in this world. I mean, if you want a better just description of what the word world means... It means God is hidden in this world. Amazing, amazing thing. So God sends his son to a faraway land. That's us in a body, right? And he sends a harlot to seduce the son. Meaning, you can fill in the blank, the harlot just stands for temptation, whatever that is. And all the while that she's seducing the son, she's saying to herself, please say no. Please say no. Please say no. Because, obviously, she wants the, the person to be right in the eyes of, of, of his father. Right? Wants him to pass the test. Doesn't want him to fail the test. So this is another iteration of understanding how evil works for good. Now, let's return back to the very deep words of the Ish Kodesh, who says that from here you see, well, not from here, but, but, but this is an explanation of how you see that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, is not bad, right? But when one listens to it, they create evil. Do, do you see how that how they just how that works on a transactional level? A very interesting, very 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 fascinating, uh, you know, formula, if you will. And and it says in the end of days that God is going to slaughter. The Yetzirah. And what he, said, what he says that means is that God is going to rid the world of all the evil that's been created. And then we'll return it back to this, you know, very pristine entity. You know, so, so it's not just this, um, this uh, angelic force of temptation that's going to be um, eliminated. 
but all of the evil that's been produced, all the muddiness, all the lack of clarity that exists in the world as a result of our sort of empowering it through, through our actions, all of that is going to disappear. Yeah? What about our thoughts? Like, I, I get it, but the actions... Right. About, like, you know, we keep thinking about something right. that we shouldn't be doing. Right. So, so you should know that we make a very fundamental distinction um, in Torah between one's thoughts and one's actions. And one's thoughts are... One is not really liable for them unless they concern idol worship. So if one is sort of like worshipping idols in their heart in a literal way, not like, man, would I like to drive a Rolls Royce. That, okay, then you can make sort of like long speeches. Oh, the idol of Rolls Royce. We're not talking about that. We're saying, wow, wouldn't it be great to bow down before that statue? That's what we're talking about at a very concrete, literal level. So on that on, on, on that level, one is um, sort of chayiv, um, we would say. One is sort of, um, you know, responsible for one's thoughts. But, but just sort of like, um, you know, just thinking about stuff like, man, that cheeseburger looks good. You know, that one is not, it's not, oh, you just ate a cheeseburger. No, you did not you just ate a cheeseburger. You remarked that it looked lovely to you. <laughs> that, that is the extent of it, you know. You know, but... Then, okay, so that's the bottom line. Okay, but, continuing with the, with the thought, um, as one progresses and one be- strives to become more and more refined, then there is something sort of like um, that needs to be addressed eventually about, about the, the fact that one wants to sort of do this dance and tango with that which is, you know, not allowed. I gave a talk on this subject um, called uh, Purifying Your Thoughts. That's uh, on, on, on uh, TorahOniTunes.com if you want to look that up. Um, and I go more into depth in it. But the, the bottom line is, is that, you know, for the here and now, thoughts are different than actions. And you just, just that, that's the main point, okay? Um, so, so, Aaron Akoyim, so Aaron the High Priest, so, he's someone who loved peace and ran after peace. And one of, one of the techniques that he used, which was an incredible thing, was he was always getting people who were fighting back together again to, to, to be friends with each other. And the technique that he used was, he would go up to one person and say, you know, that person who you're fighting with, he really wants to um, make peace with you, but he doesn't know how. And then he'd go up to the other person and say, you know that person you're fighting with? He really wants to make peace with you, but he doesn't know how. And then when they saw each other, they were positively inclined and they, were, they would help each other make peace with each other. And, and that's how he made peace with people. A, a brilliant, brilliant, just amazing thing. Now, I'll tell you another thing. And here's probably Aaron at his most radical and this is really incredible. You know, you can think of uh, Rabbi Shlomo Karlovach in this instance, you know. Is, is uh, well, I'll tell you what I mean by that in a moment. This is, this is just iron. Um, when, when it came to the worshipping of the golden calf, they went up to Aaron and they said, you lead, you lead us! And Aaron didn't yell at them, and didn't say, you disgusting lowlifes, what are you doing? And, you know, someone give me a sword fast so I can kill you all. 
You know, he, he didn't say that. He knew Moses was alive and that he was coming down, and he did his best to delay them um, so that he could maintain some sort of influence and control over them, to delay the worship till the next day, and then Moses would come back by then, and then everything would be cool, right? It didn't work out that way. Because the people, you know, listened and they waited till the next day, but they wanted to do it the first thing the next day, and Moses wasn't back yet, and then everything went to pot. And then, somehow you have Aaron having led the congregation in the worship of the golden calf. I mean, it's really one of the most heartbreaking things, because if anyone was more positively motivated, there's no person who was ever more positively motivated than Aaron Akari. And then, how on earth did he end up leading the worship of the golden calf? How on earth did that ever happen? You know, so, the reason why I mentioned Rabbi Shlomo is not that he ever led a service um, that was uh, a non-Torah service. Uh, That's 100% not, not what I'm saying. But he would go to places like ashrams and things like that where he knew there were Jews. And he would sort of make a presentation in those places, even though, maybe officially speaking, you, you really aren't supposed to go into those places as a, as a rabbi. But he would go there in order to find the Jews and to bring them back to their tradition. And so, you know, during his lifetime, people were thinking, well, you know, he's going to ashrams, he's going to this place, he's going to that place. You know, he's not really committed. And he, he knew what he was doing, and he was really saving souls. You know, um, you know, one of the swamis, one of the gurus, you know, said to him, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. You're trying to take my followers. And he said, listen to this, he said it to him, he said, no, he says, I'm just borrowing them back. Can you imagine? I'm just borrowing them back. I mean, the humility, the humility, and also if you have the ears to hear the cutting sense of humor, too, you know? But really, the humility is just awesome. It's awesome. Um, anyway, we, we haven't gotten to the miracle yet, and that's, that's really why I'm telling you all these things. So, so let's, let's get to that right now. At the end of Aaron's life, and we talk about this um, in Parsha's Chukas, if you actually want to see the verse, the verse is very cryptic, so it doesn't, it doesn't really allow you entryway into what I'm about to tell you, but that's, that's why I'm about to tell you it. It's um, chapter 20, verse 26. So, but again, that, 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 that doesn't include what I'm going to tell you, but this is where it's drawn from, okay? So, so at the end of Aaron's life, uh, Moshe, Moses, and, and, and Aaron, and his uh, eldest living son, because remember, Aaron had lost two sons the day the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert, was dedicated, not of an Avihu, had, had passed away. Actually, their neshamas flew into, the, into Pinchas, and Pinchas becomes Eliyahu, who lives forever, so there's a whole lot of stuff on that. But anyway, that's Aaron's two sons. Now, the next um, eldest son... Um, who's alive is Elazar, who then becomes the next high priest after Aaron. So it's Elazar, Aaron, and Moshe ascend uh, Mount Hor, 
Um, and and uh, and the following thing takes place. Now the Ramban indicates that Aaron had just basically finished up uh, doing the 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 avoda the, the the work in the tabernacle that morning. All right, he lit the menorah. He did all all of these amazing things that he would do every day, and and so he was. The point is, is that he was still um, robed in all of his. Uh, what we call the big day kahuna, which are the clothing of the high priest, which you know is incredibly intense. Each garment atoned for a different thing, and there's that's a whole elaborate subject in itself. But they were these super holy, like miraculous garments, basically. But but anyway, um, but they were they were man-made. They were not divine. They were man-made, so they were clothes. Um, and but there were many layers of them. And he ascended wearing that. Now listen to this. I'm going to read you the verse. It says here, um, take, take off Aaron's vestments, right? Take off these, his big day kahuna, his clothes, and dress Elazar, his son, in them. And then it says, Aaron shall be gathered in and die there. Okay? So take off Aaron's big day kahuna, his, 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 uh, his, his, his special high priest's garb, and dress his successor, his son, Elazarin. Now listen to this miracle. A miracle was done. Listen to the miracle. Normally speaking, if you're wearing many, many layers, right, you take off the top layer first, and then the next layer, and the next layer, and the next layer, and then you've got your clothes off, right? Well, I guess the idea of stripping the iron you know, was not, it just wasn't dignified, and it was just wrong on some level. I don't know what the divine motivation was, but the following miracle took place. Moshe reached in and took his innermost garment off first. Now, how do you do that? You've got layers and layers and layers and you reach in and you take the one closest to his body off first. It's, it's, it's a miracle. And we're, to- we're told that in not, not like, oh, I was thinking about it and it's a miracle. No, that, that's not it. We're told by the text itself that it's a miracle. So, so that's the point was that it was a miracle. And then put it on a lazar. And then reached in and took the next garment, innermost garment, took that off. And so this miracle repeats until Elazar is fully clothed in, 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 the, in the high priest's garb, put on in the proper order. Okay? And it says that Aaron was covered in sort of this, you know, the... the the garments of the Shekhinah. So, I guess there was some uh, envelopment that, 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 that also protected his dignity so that he was not standing there without uh, clothing. Um, so, anyway. So, let's just think about this miracle for a moment. And I was asking myself this question, which was, why was this miracle done by Aaron? You know? And what's the nature of this miracle anyway? Because if you think about it, it's a, it's a weird miracle. And who was it witnessed by? 
It was witnessed by Moshe and his son. That's it. So, you know, sometimes you think, you know, you want to get a lot of bang for the buck if you're going to make a miracle. You know, let's make sure we got at least a dozen people there. I mean, come on, for goodness sakes. You know, preferably millions. But, you know, two? And who are the two? The next high priest and Moses, you know, who are not going to be shocked by this at all, you know. So, what, what is this miracle coming to teach us? And why Aaron? Why this particular thing? So, I want to give the following interpretation. And just to um, remind you what, what, the, what the subject is here. We started off the talk with this notion of particularism versus universality. And how can I walk down a specific path and yet embrace the whole, which, which everyone wants to do. Everyone wants to be universal on some level. But the temptation is that sometimes when you stand for everything, you end up standing for nothing. And um, there are a lot of people who will tell you, you know something, I'm so elevated that I, I love a you know, poor child in Africa as much as I love my own mother. You know, usually that person is a liar. <laughs> or crazy. Because if you don't have a sense of closeness to the ones who are, you are closest to, there's something a little bit out of whack, honestly. Um, doesn't mean you shouldn't love everyone. We have to strive to. So, so what's the point? The point is like this. You see, you see, what do all these different garments stand for? And what does it mean that the innermost garment, the innermost garment, was given over first in a miraculous way? So, so I want to frame it like this. That a person says, you know what's closest to me? Do you know what's closest to, my, to myself? And that would be the, 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 the first garment, one, the one pressed against your body. My heart, my love for the world. That's, that's what's touching my heart. That's the thing that I want to most give over. But how do I get that out into the world? Because it's locked in by all these other garments, by all these other obstacles, by all these other barriers. How do I get that thing that's closest to me out into the world? So if I'm going to be, if I'm going to follow all of these, all of these like structured things, like these garments which are keeping that initial garment trapped, so to speak, how am I going to get that love out into the world when there are all these barriers stopping it from getting out? How's it going to happen? And so God says, you know something, if you love, if you really love, like Aaron O'Coin loved, if you love everyone, if you love God, if you're running after peace, if you love peace, do you think that any of those obstacles are going to remain obstacles? So Moshe, Moshe who symbolizes the Torah, Moshe is the one who got the Torah from heaven. Moshe reaches in and he takes the innermost thing out and there's no obstacles, there are no barriers. And it comes out into the world. 
And so this is us in our own lives too. Don't make the mistake of saying, well, you know, if I'm going to not eat ham, how am I going to hold down with my Southern Baptist brothers and sisters? You'll hold down without ham. <laughs> you know, just... It'll happen. It'll happen. If you love, if you really love, the love is going to come through even amidst the structured path. It will come through. It will happen. You know, in, in, in this week's Parsha, um, you see something incredible, which is, this is in Baloscha, the, the Jews start complaining about the man, the, 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 the man, the bread that fell from heaven. Now we know from the Gomorrah, from Mesechta Yuma, that Rabbi Akiva said that what was mana, what was it? It was condensed light. Literally, God condensed his light into these like pellets, basically. And we were eating condensed light. It's, it's incredible. They said it was like the food of angels, right? So how do, you, how do you get bored of that? And by the way, it says it was fully absorbed. That one never had to go to the bathroom after eating the, the mana. This was over a period of 40 years. So you say, well, wait a second, this is like totally supernatural. Well, I was just listening not too long ago to um, National Public Radio, and they were talking about hibernating bears, that they just finished their first study of hibernating bears, and that bears sleep for six months, and over a six-month time, don't go to the bathroom or eat at all over a period of six months. And that what they do is they mine the nutrients within their body, and they're 100% absorbed into their body. That's man. That's man. So we say, how could it be? How could it be? It happened over a period of 40 years, and everything was absorbed. Bears have been doing it for thousands of years. There's nothing supernatural about it. I mean, there is a bear not going to the bathroom right now, somewhere. Right now. So, 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 but how could, how could we complain about the mom if it was such an ethereal thing? So, one explanation that I heard, which is very deep, but I'm going to offer something else, which is in a way even deeper, um, is that, is that we said, wait a second, because let me just tell you the next step of this. After we complained about the man, we requested meat. And, uh, and, you know, you know, Reb Shlomo is just marvels at the idea, how could we ask Moses for meat? It's so low. And how could the, the Torah even deign to record a request of that nature? I mean, obviously, you know, the, the Torah is a handful of pages, if you think about it. It's pretty short. And so not every single thing is like, you know, and then I got a callus on my foot, you know. I mean, not everything is recorded in the Torah. So how can their request for a menu change for me be, be worthy of being recorded? So, 
So, seen on a, on a deeper level, what was happening was, the Jews were saying, we're becoming too ethereal. Like, we're not grounded. And we understand that the whole idea of Torah is to participate in the physical world. Remember, the holy people, the holy people of Judaism, and we're a nation of priests, we marry in other religions. Priests, for instance, they don't get married. They don't participate in that, that aspect of family life. You have a wife, and from your wife you have children, and you, you have a family together. You know, we, we engage in business and things like that. We're not on a mountaintop like a guru or something like that. We're, 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 we're immersed in the physical, and yet the idea is to take the Torah, which addresses all aspects of physicality, and to raise it up to a spiritual place. Well, we're, if we're eating man, and we're basically floating off the ground, how are we going to do that? So we requested meat. Let's stay rooted to this world so that we can do what it is we have to do. That's one way of understanding the dialogue back and forth. A very interesting way, I think. But Reb Shlomo brings from the Ishvitzer Rebbe something very, very amazing. He says, you know, the prophet says in the end of days, I forgot which prophet, that God is going to take our hearts of stone and turn them into a heart of flesh. The way you say that in Hebrew, a heart of flesh is a lev basar. Now, basar also means meat. Okay, but it's talking about, what it means is an open heart. An open heart. God is going to open up our heart. And so when the Jews were asking for meat in the Torah, it's basar, right? When we were asking for meat, what were we really asking for? For a heart of flesh. That's what we were asking from God. We were saying, you know something, we've been at Mount Sinai, and we've been there for a year, and you know what, it's good and it's true and it's right, but my heart is still stone. God, please, please, please open up my heart. Give me a leg basar. Give me a heart of flesh. That's what we were asking for. Awesome, awesome understanding. And so who, who had the most open heart? Iron. Iron had the most open heart. And so our hearts, we want our hearts to be open too. And we want that love to emanate out of us also. And so the Torah is telling us here, it's promising us, that if we love, and we love in a real way and we love in a correct way, that that love will not be imprisoned within us and that we shouldn't be afraid that if we walk down the path of halacha, the flow, the divine harmonizing pathways of the Torah, that we won't be able to get that, that love out there. We will be able to get that love out there. And um, Hashem should bless us that we should know it and that we should feel it and that we should live it.